When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 2011, director David Yates and the child acting dream team gave the world a climactic finale to literature's greatest young adult series. In 2022, we returned to Kentucky to try a whiskey with a distinct funk. <laughs> the film is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, part two. The whiskey is Rowan's Creek. And we'll review them both. This is the Film and Whiskey, whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at, did you say 2011? 2011, Bob. Wow. I, I was thinking that we were going to hit the 10-year anniversary, but we missed it. It's it, We're yeah. looking at the 11-year anniversary of the eighth Harry Potter film, The Deathly Hallows Part 2. Henceforth, which will be known as Harry Potter 8. I can't say all that, Brad. Yes. It's just, it's too much. <laughs> it's an assassination of the <laughs> Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Assassination of Voldemort by the coward <laughs> Neville Longbottom. Do you want to know a fun fact that I learned in researching for this movie? Oh, please. Voldemort in French means flight from death Ooh. or more literally cheat of death or steal of death. Wow. Isn't that good? So, See like, if we if we knew any French at all, it would just tip yeah. us off to everything that's going. It's kind of like uh, if you know German, like Darth Vader is a yeah. very easy thing to figure out. Exactly. Wow, Brad, yeah. you know where I want to start today on Harry Potter Eight because this is it, man. We we've gone through the entire series. We started this season with Harry Potter Seven. We bookended it with Harry Potter Eight. Is this the first time? That they did the thing where they were adapting a series of books and they split it into two. Because I think this is the first time they did that. It has to be. Because I remember when they did that, it was like, not an uproar, but everybody was like, why do they think they're they're splitting it into two? You, you could fit it into one. And I think it's like, called a kerfuffle. Uh, yes, there was a kerfuffle. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so I believe you are correct. This is the first time they took a book series... And uh, split the last book into two. And then everyone thought that they could do that in subsequent series. I mean, it, you know, the, yeah. the Hunger Games movies did it. The Twilight movies did it. You could argue that this influenced the Hobbit movies to split yep. into three. I, I was about to say the Hobbit. So, I mean, just serious points against this movie for starting probably the worst trend ever. Yeah, I, I really think... That you could have made one like three to three hour and 15 minute movie out of the Deathly Hallows mm -hmm. rather than two like, two, I don't know. It, it, they're both probably around like 210 mm -hmm. or so. So now, like uh, four hours and 20 minutes or like a actually like concise 
three hours and 15 minutes. Now, you've read the book. I've never read the book. I, I stopped after book five, which is something that I think I've said on every episode. It's still wild to me, man. I wear it you like a badge get, of honor at this point. You got to get back in there and read it, man. Like, F those books. I'm never going to read them at this point. That's so, like that's like saying, like, F scotch. I, I wear it as a badge of honor. I've never tasted a <laughs> sip of scotch in my life. I mean, okay. So... <laughs> 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 Back to my point. Uh, you've read the book. Is the division of the movies like roughly the halfway point of the book? I believe it is. Okay. Um, I, I think that when he... I don't, do we have to say spoiler alert? No. If you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you know that we dive deep into spoilers and we've already spoiled seven Harry Potter movies. So yes. I think we might as well just continue the trend. Okay, so when he buries Dobby, feels like, at the very least, I don't remember if it's right in the middle of the book, I think it's in a good narrative beat to to split the two movies in half. Okay. I'll, I'll give him credit there. And one thing that we really liked about Harry Potter 7 was that it had a, a different rhythm and a different vibe and feel from the rest of the films. And, you know, I, we kept trying to avoid using the word shaggy but like it it definitely felt more loose. It felt like the characters had room to breathe. I really got a sense that you understood the dynamic between these three friends in a way that you really never got a chance to because there's so much plot happening in the first six movies. And there's a ton of plot happening in, in this last year of Hogwarts as well. But because of the way that they let these movies kind of air out, I think it really benefited number seven. But by the time you get to number eight, I think one thing I really noticed on this watch through, Brad, and and I guess uh, spoiling my own feelings towards this movie, is that I would say the first 35, 40, 45 minutes of this movie felt just completely aimless. Like there was yeah. no rhythm to it. It felt like it didn't have a starting point. In fact, when I was watching it, I don't even remember this happening in the theater. And it, I, so it's one of those things where I don't know if they inserted it later, but the movie starts with, like, you know, last week on Harry Potter, and they do, like, a montage of, like, what we saw last time we were visiting with Voldemort, and then it starts the movie after that. It was very weird to see him stealing the Elder Wand again and, and then replaying the end of number seven. It didn't even feel like episodic television. It just kind of was going, and then I was like, oh, the movie's on. And yeah. I kept doing that for 40 minutes because I was so disinterested with everything that was happening. Yeah, the entire Gringotts sequence just feels awkward. I mean, I, I will give credit where it's due. I think that whoever played um, Griphook, the goblin. Yeah, Warwick like, Davis. Was, yeah, Warwick, my dude from Star Wars. Uh, Warwick freaking killed it. When they when they're like talking to him about the sword and mm -hmm. he's like asking them where they got it, I just remember taking a note. I was like, Griphook here is terrifying. Like he is dark and brooding, and I just loved everything he was doing in that scene. But other than that, the first the first like third of this movie is just really boring, Bob. And bad. It's like it's badly done. And you could yeah. tell where they focused their efforts and their energy and their money, frankly, because I think the first oh, let's, let's talk about that Gringotts sequence. And we will get into Brad Explains and all that in a minute. But we're on a roll here, so I don't want to get us Harry, off of it. Harry tries to kill Voldemort and stuff happens. <laughs> Boom. The Brad, end. Brad Explains. <laughs> Brad explained. So they have to go down into the bowels of Gringotts Bank and 
Brad, I mean, the green screening is awful when they're riding that like trolley cart, Indiana Jones style. Yeah. It reminded me of when they go visit the Goblin King in The Hobbit and how bad that Ooh. looked. But like it looked even worse. And, you know, the dragon doesn't look good. And then there's a, a part where they're trying to escape from Gringotts and they're kind of hiding behind a wall. And I don't know if it's like goblins or whoever it is. Someone's shooting spells at them. And you could kind of tell that they were filming it in reshoots because they never cut back outside to what was happening outside that room that they were hiding in. You never got a shot with the three kids and whoever their enemies were in the same shot. And it just kind of felt like, oh, they must have really botched this the first time around and they're trying to piece something together in reshoots. (laughs) But man, I, I texted you at like the 45 minute mark of watching this movie and was shocked at how bad it was to that point. It really felt like we were back to David Yates of the Order of the Phoenix. Yeah, that like he just didn't really know where he was going. He didn't know how to handle the characters. It felt like he he needed to hit certain story beats, but there was no real rhythm to the film. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he finds it later in the film, but you're right, man. The first third almost the first half of this movie just feels kind of disjointed and wonky and there there's not as much money thrown behind the cgi i mean you know there's a few beautiful shots when they're you know when they're riding the dragon off into the sunset and they're they're in the middle of all these locks and mountains and stuff like yeah it's beautiful but for the most part it it's a rough 30 40 minutes to endure yeah it sure is and it it feels like the kind of thing where Man, I wish that this series had just implemented the Star Wars like opening crawl. You know what I mean? Like, hey, our heroes went <laughs> and got this thing from a bank. And now let's get back to Hogwarts. Because what if go what ahead. if the opening crawl had become so pervasive that every single movie utilized it? <laughs> it's like like Juno. Just an opening <laughs> crawl about getting pregnant. Yep. You get dropped in halfway through. Oh, Young man. teen girl, Juno. <laughs> Finding herself raging with hormones. All right. Well, on that note, let's pivot hard out of that conversation. And Brad, let's move into Brad Explains. This is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the movie that he has just seen often for the first time. Brad, this is probably the latest in an episode we've ever introed Brad Explains. But I thought that it was it's pretty late, man. It was necessary to structure our episode the same way this movie is structured. With a beginning that is <laughs> meandering and aimless before finally getting into the meat of things. So you have 60 seconds on the clock. Can you break down the plot of Harry Potter 8? Um, Harry and his friends, uh, they got to get a few more Horcruxes. There's like two or three more. I think the annual like debate that anyone has when they're watching this movie is like, how many Horcruxes are left? Like, well, they wait, keep multiplying, this... too. They're like, you got I them know. all, but also you. there's one more. Like... <laughs> yeah. So they they destroy it. They find, like, a, a, a cup, and they do it in Gringotts, and then they're, they're doing good, and <laughs> I can't remember the plot of this movie <laughs> for the life of me. It's literally, they find the last few Horcruxes, they realize that Harry is a Horcrux, they go back to Hogwarts and they mount a defense against all the bad Death Eaters. And Harry dies to Voldemort after seeing Snape cry. And then he comes back to life and kills Voldemort. Boom. The end. 
<laughs> is that it? It's like, you know, there's a bad murder and then there's a good murder and then we celebrate <laughs> the good murder. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's about it. <laughs> All right, so let's jump back in to nitpicking this movie because there was a very specific point in the movie at which everything started clicking for me and I was ready to come on here and just poop all over this movie. And then it just really started working. And so I will get to a point where I start praising this movie, but we're not there yet because I have to talk about (laughs) hold your horses. (laughs) Yeah. I have to talk about how Voldemort starts broadcasting his thoughts into the ears of everyone inside Hogwarts. So Mm -hmm. Voldemort leads this very ill-advised ground assault on Hogwarts, which I don't understand. <laughs> Everyone has brooms. Like, why are you not attacking? Re- like, really attacking from all angles here, dude. I was thinking that when when McGonagall does the cool locomotive spell and all the statues come out and they're yeah. on the bridge, they put like a force I'm field like, around it. Yeah, and then the and then they're like telling Neville and the other children to blow up the the back the the back entrance, which is this big wooden bridge. Right. Like, you do realize that you've spent the last like. I think it's in the third or the fourth movie. I think it's in the fourth movie that they establish that Death Eaters can like fly around like banshees. Yes. And you're like, okay, so they can do that. Think of all of the inventive things in like every movie, the flying car and the Mm -hmm. flu powder and the like talking to people through fireplaces. And like, there are so many ways they could have gotten into Hogwarts. That place was not on lockdown at all. Yeah. I mean, I will say in the books, they make it clear that you can't like teleport into Hogwarts and there's like restrictions and stuff. But if you're if you have an army standing right outside, put them on brooms, have the giants throw them into the courtyard. I don't know. Like (laughs) you got magic. Like you'll figure it out. Uh, So anyway, Voldemort is just standing outside feeling very thwarted and uh, decides to make threats. And he broadcasts his mind into the minds of everyone in there. And he's like, it's me, Voldemort. And they're like, oh, my God. And then he says, like, give up Harry <laughs> Potter and I'll reward you. And then he, he signs off with, you have one hour. And that's it. And it's it's so unintentionally funny. It sounds so desperate. Like, And I think they're trying to underscore the fact that at this point, Voldemort is desperate because he understands what Harry and Ron and Hermione are doing. And But it's just... Every decision with Voldemort in this movie, I feel like really takes away from the mythos of Voldemort. You know what I mean? Like he stops being a very threatening character at about the 15 minute mark of this movie. And they do their best to show he's just a very sad and desperate man. Um, Yeah. But it also like. It doesn't underscore how sad and desperate he is. It just comes across as unintentionally funny for a lot of the movie. Well, the the struggle for me is he is supposed to be the most powerful wizard of all time, mm-hmm. barring maybe Dumbledore, but Dumbledore is dead. So like, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with you that he doesn't come across as, as menacing anymore. Like the, the one hour comment, I didn't find funny at all. Um, I, I, like, just, I, thought I, just, that I just was... pictured him like talking into a telephone and being like, give me Harry Potter and then going to put it down and then. <laughs> Just like putting it right back up to his ear and saying like, you have one hour and then, and then hanging up again. Like, <laughs> and then it just Harry seemed like going, such an afterthought. And then Harry going, I have a very special set of skills. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I, I didn't perceive that in that manner. I think that Voldemort, he kind of struggles in this movie because they tie a lot of his power to the Elder Wand. 
And like this, this kind of comes back to me with, I think my big problems with this movie are not necessarily with the movie itself. Although there are some struggles that Yates has as a director. I think that the source material is just really hard to turn into a movie. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the biggest struggle. And the thing is, I like the seventh book. I like, I like every single book of the Harry Potter series. I think they work really phenomenally as young adult literature. But as a movie, the seventh book is hard to turn into a movie. And I think that it does kind of affect the way you view Voldemort. And you spend so much time with Ron and Hermione trying to find the Horcruxes and make their way around the castle and talk to ghosts and and do all these somewhat mundane type of things that you just kind of get lost in the shuffle of like they're doing these cool things outside with the army and they're putting up this shield and they're bombarding it and you know all this stuff is happening but in the end Voldemort just doesn't come across as the most powerful wizard in the world in this movie no and I think that is a a problem of David Yates as a director that like the final battle between Harry and Voldemort is frankly just kind of boring and like not not much really happens and at this point they've relied on the wands connecting to one another with a spell like 17 times yeah and it just kind of gets old and so i just i don't know man this movie just overall doesn't do it for me very well so to give it a compliment i will say that as a guy who doesn't like to get really deep into lore of of things like this like especially when it's an adaptation like if i'm reading a book absolutely hit me with the lore sounds great in a movie it needs to be well-constructed enough that my brain isn't constantly questioning the rules. And as long as you do that, I'm on board. Like, you just have to buy into the premise. that It's like the, you know, I'll call it like the Jurassic Park theory. In, in the movie Jurassic Park, the science makes enough sense, the way that it's explained, that you're like, awesome, let's go see some T-Rexes. You know what I mean? Dude, the science makes enough sense that I think... There's a lot of people out there who believe that, like, if you found a mosquito encased in in uh, in amber, uh, amber, yeah. that you could make dying. Like, I think people actually believe that. It, I mean, it sounds plausible <laughs> and it's plausible it's, enough that you're just like, cool, I'm rolling with it. You know? Yeah, exactly. And in Harry Potter, especially in this one, I will say that the more that I've, like, gone on the Harry Potter wikis and everything else to learn more about Horcruxes the more my eyes glaze over seeing it all spelled out makes it more boring. And this movie does just enough to be like, here's a little piece of information. Here's why that Horcrux isn't working. Here's the reveal that Harry is a Horcrux. And we're going to do it in just these little bits that propel the narrative forward and whet your appetite and don't leave you completely confused. And I actually really appreciated that because I think one knock that I've seen against this movie is that it doesn't dive deep enough into the lore or that it doesn't um, it doesn't lay it out in a way that makes a lot of sense. But I thought that it made enough sense that what was happening on screen was still highlighted and it wasn't just the mythology and the backdrop that was being highlighted because I think that would have made this movie drag even more. No, I'm with you. I, I think that there's always opportunities to over-explain what's going on in the books for, for any series that's based on books. You just have a lot more pages for people to read in a book than you have minutes for someone to watch a film. Mm-hmm. And so I'm okay when they, they kind of 
concisely bring the information to a point that people need to understand what's going on. Like you said, give me the premise and I can roll with the implications of that premise. I think that with the world of Harry Potter, it it can just, for me, every once in a while get confusing because, and I think that the newer Harry Potter movies struggle from this, the the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them franchise. At a certain point, you have to just ask the question, when what are the limits on magic? Mm-hmm. And I think in the in the original series they do a pretty good job of like sticking to the world that that Rowling created of like there are rules to magic, there's like research that goes into making new spells and you know you have to really study and learn and and do all this stuff and some people are more naturally powerful but you still have to study and all that. Uh, but by the time you get to this one at a certain point you're it does just kind of feel like are we just making magic do whatever we want now like uh, are there any rules and and Voldemort kind of epitomizes that in this it's like he just gets angry enough that the the shield barrier comes down and he's just flying around and doing stuff and he's just kind of cool and doing whatever he wants yeah. and I, I don't know I just hit a certain point where I'm like is it just a little bit ridiculous and I think that a series like this is always going to like open itself up to the criticisms about having like a deus ex machina, right? Like that something that comes in in the 11th hour that they're like, oh, remember this yeah. magical pen is going to write our way to victory. And they're like, hooray. And, <laughs> you know, the pen wasn't even in the plot until three fourths of the way through the movie. And that's just that's how worlds of magic are. And I accept it and I understand it. And so you have to give it take it with a little bit of a grain of salt, but I agree with you that this movie in particular or this, you know, book in the series, it introduces so many of those. And it's like, we have to explain all of the loose ends of this prophecy. And was this prophecy true or was this prophecy just misinterpreted? And, oh, he created another Horcrux on accident and you're that Horcrux. And so you have to die now. And then once you die, it's like, well, Guess what? He was misinformed about the Elder Wand. And then you go back and there's more shit about the Elder Wand. And it's like, I I don't care anymore. I want to see the final duel between these two. Yeah. But I don't want the the rules of this duel and who's going to win to only be based on some weird loophole technicality. And I think yes. that's the thing that really bothers me about it is like, it doesn't feel like Voldemort and Harry are fighting as equals. And I don't even mean that, like, you know, to your point, like if Voldemort is the most powerful wizard, like he would kick Harry's ass. And we all understand that. But even even if you just present like a weakened Voldemort fighting his hardest against Harry, like that's compelling and it's good versus evil. But it's the fact that it's like you're going to defeat him because the Elder Wand isn't loyal to him. What's the significance of that? Like, mm hmm. There's so much in these books that that tries to be metaphorical. And I think at that point, it's like, what's what's the point? What's the the symbol here? Is it that Voldemort is putting blind faith in things that he doesn't understand? He's just too angry and hateful to to see what's going on in front of his face. But honestly, like even as an audience member, they don't explain what the hell is going on with the Elder Wands allegiance until way after the fact. Like Voldemort's dead and everyone's happy and saying hooray. And then Hermione's like, hey, what what was going on with that elder one, by the way? <laughs> what actually was going on? Do you know what I mean? Here, and it's Harry. like, if you need a, a scene to explain it that late in the movie, then just don't freaking do it. And yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, you're right. It's one of my biggest nitpicks with the whole series. 
I couldn't care less about the Elder Wand. And they make it like the most important point of the plot towards the end of this film. I think that the Deathly Hallows in general just feel like such a weird addition to the series because they're they're not even mentioned in the books before the seventh book. Yeah. Like there, like there's just nothing about them. And then all of a sudden the entire seventh book is about them trying to find them as they're finding the Horcruxes. And I just struggle with them becoming such a focal part of the series so late in the series. Yeah. And I, I think that it undermines like Harry's growth as a character. Like the final battle should represent Harry reaching the pinnacle of belief in himself mm-hmm. right because what where do we have harry at the start of the whole series he's living in a cupboard beneath the stairs in his abusive aunt and uncle's house where he is last place in everything and unwanted and uncherished and so like the end of the movie should be a place where he has you know, if we're talking about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, he has self-actualized. He knows who he is. He has sacrificed himself for the greater good. He believes in himself and his his friends that have become family. And because of those things, he has become more powerful than the most powerful wizard who ever lived and beats him in a fair, fair fight. And square. Yes. Yes. That like that would represent the pinnacle of good triumphing over evil. Well, and that's the but thing it's... about these the Deathly Hallows is that there's such such aids to him. Like, and it's not that they do a job, but it's that they're like these all powerful things, and they come at the point in the story where he should need the least amount of help. Yeah, you know, in book one, the kid is like eleven years old, and they're like, "Hey, man, all you get to fight this guy who has a face growing out of the back of his head is an invisibility <laughs> cloak." Like, good luck. <laughs> Which which was a deathly, a deathly hallow. hallow, right? But yeah. But by the time you get to the seventh book, it's like, hey, what if you had a stone that could raise you from the dead? Like, what if you were all powerful and had a resurrection stone? And it's like, well, then there's no stakes to anything. Well, but even that though, it's not that it raised him from the dead. It's that it brought the spirits back to give him support to go die. <laughs> And so, like, was it really necessary? Because you already pulled his parents' dead spirits out once in the fourth book when you had their wands connect the first time. So why don't you just, I don't know, do something like that? Like, I I don't know. The Deathly Hallows just feel like such a weird device. MacGuffin, if you will. Like, they just feel like a weird addition. And once again, I, I will iterate that I'm not necessarily talking about the movie. I am talking about the source material at this point. So it... If y'all just love that part of the source material, great. Like, that's awesome. I've just never fully understood why it's there. And see, I have always said that I'm a movie guy and this is a movie podcast. And if you come back to me and say, like, well, if you just read the book, I shouldn't have to read the book to understand the movie. The movie is a thing that stands on its own or should. And so I am coming at it from the point of the movie because I have not read the source material. And To its credit, I think that the internal logic of the movie works. Like, I understand what's going on. I just think that sometimes it's sloppily constructed Mm -hmm. and and they introduce way too many of these get out of jail free cards. Brad, when we come back from break, we will talk more about the filmmaking here. We haven't talked performances at all. 
And I do think that I want to praise some things that David Yates does, particularly in the second half of the film. But before we get there, let's hit pause. Let's try this Rowan's Creek. What do you say? Can I complain about one other source material thing before we go in there? <laughs> yeah, sure. Let's do it. All right. So I like how you waited till the very end of me saying like, let's get to it. And then you're like, no, 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 no. One more complaint. I mean, how was I supposed to interrupt you? You were just I was flying on, a roll. on through. I was you on, a roll. on a roll, man. I don't want to interrupt you. Source uh, material. Severus Snape. Mm. So here's the thing. I'm, I know I'm about to piss off a lot of people and I'll, I'll accept that. So Severus Snape's whole deal is that he loves Lily, yep. right? I'm I'm just going to give you a scenario, Bob. And you you tell me what you think of this scenario. Kid grows up, you know, he's a little bit poor. He has this little girl that he's like genuinely just good friends with. They get to high school, he develops a crush on her, really falls in love with her cuz they've been friends for forever and she's one of the only people that's ever been nice to him. She ends up dating somebody else. He's sad about it. Probably, probably a little angry about it. She gets married to this other guy. He's just heartbroken, crushed. He, she goes on and has a kid with this other guy. Still just really sad and heartbroken. And then they both die. They're both killed. They're both murdered. Like, at a certain point, when does it become weird to still be (laughs) obsessively in love with your friend from childhood? Yeah. Like, is I, it when she's dating someone else? Is it when she's married to someone else? Is it when she's had kids with someone else? Right. Because at a certain point, I don't think what he is doing is loving. I think it is sad. And I think that it is harmful to himself. It's, and to others. And to others. So, like, and, the whole thing is that Harry's dad is kind of a dick, right? And I kind of love right. that they never give him a redemption arc. Like, you never nope. find out that he, like, you know, pulled a baby out of a well. He's just a <laughs> dick, and, and yeah. Harry has to live with that forever. But yep, which is cool. I mean, like, you know, I'm glad they did that and and didn't try to shoehorn in some weird growth there. But like at a certain point, you're kind of on team James Potter because like imagine it from his point of view. You are married. It, it's like it's like the reverse Mavis Gary. Like like yes! Severus Snape is young adulting the Potter family. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. I as long as you can understand my angst with that part of the story, and like I've talked to people who are like, "Oh, Severus Snape, always, it's adorable. He has her Patronus as his." I'm like, and I usually try to just be nice and be like, "Oh, yeah, that's that's kind of cool. Like that's an interesting part of the story." Like at a certain point, man, it's a little bit creepy. It is, and it like. <laughs> I've never understood why we so like glorify what he does because yes, even to Harry, like as he's dying, he's like, you have your mom's eyes. And also like, I still totally want to your mom. Like, like his <laughs> yeah. whole motivation is I'm in love with your dead mom. And yep. you never really get the sense that he is motivated by doing the right thing. Like, his whole reason when you read the lore for like going to Dumbledore in the first place was like, I'm a death eater. I have made some bad mistakes. I want Lily Potter to be protected. And that's why he starts working for the good guys as a double agent. And like all the way through after Lily dies and he swears to Dumbledore that he's going to protect Harry. He's motivated by the fact that he wants to a dead lady. And like you never really truly get a sense that it's just like no Voldemort is bad and I need to do the right thing 
It's kind yes. of just like I've made a vow to this dead woman that I love and I'm doing it for her. And I just, yeah. I don't understand why we see that as like some huge act of valor and not just yes. like this really desperate, pathetic incel guy. I don't, yep. I don't know. Yep. I, dude, I am happy as a clam. You could give this movie a one out of 10 or a 10 out of 10. I wouldn't even care. That, that's all I needed to get out in this episode. <laughs> all right, man, let's drink some whiskey. What do you say? <laughs> I'm ready, dude. Today's sponsor is a little bit of a departure from our usual area of expertise. And man, oh man, I was blown away by their product once we received it. I am talking about Manscaped. Now, if you're like me at all, you've probably seen the Manscaped ads and kind of wondered to yourself, like, do I really need like some sort of specialty trimmer to take care of my downstairs business? And I've just got to be honest, I was absolutely wrong. Uh, their trimmer is called the Lawnmower 4.0, and I got to say, it is the Rolls Royce of trimmers. It's got a ceramic blade that reduces grooming mishaps, a wireless charging base, and an awesome flashlight that keeps things illuminated while you're working. And beyond all that, it's waterproof. This thing is really changing the game when it comes to below-the-belt hygiene. Now, this is just me talking about my experience, but this trimmer really is way beyond anything I've ever used to keep things neat and tidy. You can use our discount code FILMWHISKEY to get 20% off your order and free shipping. Head on over to manscaped.com and use code FILMWHISKEY to get 20% off, free shipping, and you will be well on your way to hygiene heaven. All right, so today we are checking out Rowan's Creek. Now, Brad, this might sound kind of familiar to you because it has a brother whiskey called Noah's Mill. This is produced by Willet Distillery. Uh, originally, when this came out, it was a 12-year age-stated product. It is no longer age-stated, which means it's a blend of some whiskeys. But it's kind of known as, like, Noah's Mill Light. It's bottled at a little bit lower proof. <laughs> Noah's Mill is 114 proof. This clock's in at 100.1 proof. Very, very necessary, that point one. Oh, you know it. But, you know, from everything I've read about it, I think I've had this maybe one time before, Brad, but I can't remember because I'm such a huge fan of Noah's Mill. I just keep buying that. So from everything I've heard, everything I've read, this is kind of like a slightly more tamed version of Noah's Mill. And Brad, like it's been a little while since we've had Noah's Mill. I think we drank it when we did A League of Their Own and we had Bourbon and Blondes on the podcast. I believe that was it, yeah. And I'm a huge fan of it. I think everybody else was a little cooler on it than me. But this is our first return to Willet in a while. Uh, how are you feeling about it? Dude, I this is this is the funk, man. I'm I'm ready. <laughs> this is just the funk. The man. All right, so then let's just dive in. I want to know like when you knows this, is there a funk on it or am I just crazy? For me, there's a little bit of a floral note that is dissonant with the rest of the nose. Because mm -hmm. uh, most of it, I got like cherry, caramel, and cream, mm -hmm. which is like a really nice, pleasant uh, nose. But there's just some weird floral, uh, just kind of some like rose, lavender, flowery mm -hmm. stuff going on that was unique and interesting and a little bit funky. So I'll give it a seven and a half on the nose. I think rose is the perfect note to describe what I get on Willet products. Like it's dusty. There's some sawdust to it. And I think like when I pick up on that dustiness and other things, I'm immediately like, oh, Willet. 
But then when I go back to a Willet product, it's not so much just that it's dusty. You're right. It's this really interesting rose kind of character that's on this in spades, man. Like, I really like this a lot. It doesn't smell incredibly sweet. And I think the floral note really kind of dominates in the glass. I'm excited to see where it goes, but it doesn't have a ton of bourbony character behind it. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10 on the nose. When I get into the actual palate, I, I really enjoy this. Uh, that cherry comes through strong. For me, there's a nice bit of vanilla that's that's kind of hinted in there with it. And then there there's like a little bit of a pepper, like a black pepper note that I, I'm really intrigued by. The floral stuff kind of disappears for me. Uh, it's not as there it's not there quite as much on the palette, but it's a really nice, fun, interesting palette. I'll give it an eight out of ten. I think I'm going to split from you here a little bit, Brad. I don't really care for this as much as Noah's Mill, and part of it is because it doesn't have a consistent sweetness throughout. Like, it really kind of tips into almost some tannic, like, wine character for me on the palate. A lot of rye spice. Like, in fact, I think that the front of my palate would have mistaken this for a rye. And then as I kind of kicked it to the back of my mouth, it has a nice kind of dark red wine character. When you go to swallow, and I'll get into this on finish, it turns really bitter, and the oak is pretty prominent, but not in a way that tastes like chard. I don't know if you remember when we did Elijah Craig Toasted Barrel. We talked about the differences in flavor between a toasted barrel and a charred barrel, and this really does seem to have kind of like a, um, I don't know, like a really youthful kind of under-seasoned wood flavor going on to it. Not a huge fan of this palette. I'm going to give it a six and a half. Yeah, the the finish, I'm right there with you, Bob. It gets very oaky. It's a long finish, uh, and there's a little bit of spice going on. To me, it's the least impressive part of the whiskey so far, but it's still decent. I'll give it a 7 out of 10. Yeah, man. Uh, The second sip I just took, it definitely was a little bit more sweet on the tip of my tongue, but it goes so tannic and so bitter on the end. It's It's like drinking really, really strong black tea. And um, I'm not a huge fan. The finish is, you're right, it's long, it's mouthwatering. And I know I said it was tannic, so you wouldn't think it was mouthwatering, but it's not It's not one that burns too much. It's not one that just kind of saps all the moisture out of your mouth. I just don't really care for this flavor that's left behind. So I'm only going to give it a five and a half on finish. Well, and that brings us to our balance. Uh, honestly, Bob, for me, I think that this is a good mix of flavors that stay decently strong throughout. Uh, I'll give it a seven and a half on balance. It's pretty decent. Yeah, I'm gonna give it a six on balance. I know it's probably unfair for me to compare this so strongly to Noah's Mill, but man, I just think that's such a better product all the way through. This one really tapered off from the nose into the palate, into the finish. I'm gonna give it a, I'm gonna give it a five and a half again on balance. All right, Bob, you're at the liquor store. You're looking at all the whiskeys you could buy, and you see this for $48 in the state of Ohio. Yikes. That is a lot of money Mm -hmm. uh, for this whiskey. Mm -hmm. I think I'll give it a 5 out of 10 on value. I I think it's a solid whiskey. I just think it should be like a $35 bottle, $38 bottle, not $48. Noah's Mill is like $8 more, and it is Barrel strength. I mean, like they don't bottle it at yeah. barrel strength, but it's like a cask strength whiskey. And it's just so much more consistent. And you look around at other things in this price point. I mean, wild turkey rare breed is like $5 less than this. If you're talking about something that's bottled at 100 proof that's this good, I mean, you can look at pretty much everything in the Rebel Yell line 
I, man, I just, I don't see it, dude. I'm going to give it, yeah, let's give it a five and a half again. I think that's kind of like my consistent theme here today. So I'm coming out to a 31 out of 50. Brad, what's your final score? I'm at a 35 out of 50. Wow. Okay. So we're averaging out to a 33 or a 66 out of 100. I think that's a pretty good point for this. It's just below where we would normally recommend trying and or buying. I actually don't think you need to try this and I don't think you need to buy this. I really would recommend just going for Noah's Mill. It's better all around for me. I think I'd recommend trying it. Uh, if it's something that's that, you know... There's like mixed sweetness with a little bit of spiciness, some oak. If it's if that sounds like your profile, like, yeah, sure, go for it. But I'm with you. Don't buy a bottle of it. Just try a pour at your local bar. It might be something that tickles your fancy. Brad, before we get back into Harry Potter, I just want to give a quick shout out because do you know who sent us this sample of Rowan's Creek? It's our friends Bourbon and Stuff. Do you remember? Hey! Remember when they sent us that box of whiskey? Have they sent us stuff yet? They have not sent us stuff. They really need to get on that. But we have been sitting on this sample for like two seasons now. We finally (laughs) worked it into the the episodes. So I'm sorry that it was a a little bit more of a letdown than we expected. But we are eternally grateful to Bourbon and Stuff. Yeah, if you want to, go head on over to Instagram. Check out Bourbon and Stuff. They are a phenomenal whiskey page. And we're just incredibly thankful for them. They're great people. All right, Brad, it's time to get back into talking about the movie. So let's pivot back to Harry Potter 8. What do you say? Pivot! (laughs) All right, everybody, that was Rowan's Creek, a whiskey that we're a little bit cool on. And honestly, Bob, it feels like it's paired with a movie that we're a little bit cool on. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. (laughs) Bob's like getting ready to give it a nine and a half. (laughs) We'll, We'll see. Bob, as we have been the last few episodes here, we are about to move into our newest segment, one which I just found out today. I have had it confirmed by our favorite Canuck himself. Aperture Flash has confirmed for me that this is Canada's favorite segment. <laughs> well, that's that's great because America's favorite segment is Brad Explains. So yeah. we can, we can yeah. amicably split these two things. We're covering both sides of the border, man. So what's the segment? Two facts and a falsehood. There it is. All right, let's get into two facts and a falsehood and see if Brad can stump me. Hit me with fact number one, Brad. Fact number one, Harry's lightning bolt scar was applied by makeup teams approximately 5,800 times by the end of the film franchise. Daniel Radcliffe had the scar applied 2,000 times while the rest were applied to stunt doubles and stand-ins. Fact number two. All told, Harry wore 52 different outfits for the movies, and many of the street clothes that he wore were from his own wardrobe. Fact number three, Daniel Radcliffe went through 160 pairs of glasses across all eight films, and the majority did not have lenses in them to avoid a reflection on the camera. Mm. These seem incredibly trivial, so this is really, really hard. Because this, I mean, it, about it is a trivia. It is a trivia segment. So mm. I know the story about Daniel Radcliffe constantly breaking his glasses and his wand. I know he went through like forty wands. Um, I'll say the glasses too. Who who freaking knows? This is hard because I've. I mean, it could just be any of these three things. I'm gonna say 
I was going to say one's the falsehood because that seems like a high number. Like 2,000 seems like a lot. But I'm going to say two's the falsehood just because I don't know about Daniel Radcliffe's own wardrobe. So I'll say two's the falsehood. Bob, you are 100% correct. Number two was the falsehood. Cool. I did it. Yeah, you did it, man. I'm so proud of myself. And I will say... Uh, the the facts about his scar application and his uh, how many glasses he went through were provided by Warner Bros. Studio of London. Mm. They did like a whole Twitter uh, series talking about it was like a trivia section where you could vote for which answer you thought was right. And so they did, they did a whole thing on like just behind the scenes movie trivia. Oh, that's cool. We don't have to worry about anything being fake this episode. Verified by the studio itself. That's right. All right, Brad. So we have not talked performances. We don't really have time to talk performances, especially with a cast this large. So why don't you just single out someone you thought was really good and someone that you thought underwhelmed in this movie? I think that Daniel Radcliffe is a little underwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. In this one. Yeah. I I think we kind of got peak Daniel Radcliffe in... Was it the third or the fourth one that we liked him in? Yeah, I can't remember. It was like it I was one of those was, movies that we were like, "Oh, it's too bad" because the movie was not great, but he was really. good I think in it this was one. the fourth. It was the fourth one. Yeah, because that's the one where he like, yeah, definitely the fourth one. Uh, yeah, Daniel Radcliffe. Just here's the thing: I literally can't imagine anyone else as Harry Potter. Sure. Like I like I genuinely like him as Harry Potter. But overall, I think his performances are are up and down throughout the series with a few more downbeats than up. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I will hand the award for underwhelming to Daniel Radcliffe, but that's only because I think one of the fatal flaws with this movie is there is so much plot to get through that some characters barely even show up in the movie. Hmm. And it got to the point where, you know, Harry goes out into the woods to meet Voldemort. And they've got Hagrid tied up. And I was like, oh, shit, it's Hagrid. Like, I forgot. I completely <laughs> forgot existed. about Hagrid. And the only, like, your only introduction to him is that, like, they cut to a close-up and he's like, Harry, what are you doing here? And I'm like, oh, Hagrid. So I just want you to record the entire episode in that as, Hagrid as Hagrid. <laughs> anyway, so it's kind of hard for me to give out an award for someone who really impressed me because... It's still just about Harry and Voldemort and a little bit of Hermione, and that's about it. So I'll, I mean, I'll just say Emma Watson still acts circles around the rest of the child <laughs> actors. Like she's yes. the only convincing one, even at the end of the movie where they're trying to make them look like they're 37 years old, but it, it ranges from like 22 to 50 based on the makeup. <laughs> yeah. Like she's pretending to be sad that her fake child is going away on the Hogwarts Express and it, she sells it like she's really good. Yeah, hundred percent. So I mean, you know, I'll give her that, and I'll give the underwhelming to Daniel Radcliffe. I will say, I think that every scene that they are in throughout all of the movies, the twins who play Fred and George are just spectacular. Mm. I absolutely love them, and even even the place where you know they are standing on the wall together, waiting for the impending invasion. Like, just that little moment they have together, you can just feel their sincerity through the screen, that they genuinely love one another. 
And when uh, when one of the two dies, I, I don't remember if it's Fred or George who dies, uh, which feels appropriate because the mom can't even tell him apart. <laughs> I when when they are mourning his loss, that's probably the one part of the movie where I feel the crushing weight of what's happened the most. Mm. So I, I I love love the twins. They're they're probably some of my favorite of all the secondary characters throughout the movies. All right, we're done with performances. Forget the rest of the cast; they're all mediocre. So <laughs> over it. Yeah. Um, what, were you, uh, oh. what about Ray Fiennes? No, I'm not feeling him in this movie. You know what I'm it is? Either. It's, it's bringing Voldemort into the daylight. Like, just yeah. don't do that. He, he looks needs to be silly. in the shadows. He does the like the the weird little laugh at Neville and he, nah! like that's what he sounds like when he laughs. It just it ruins the character. It's so bad. Dude, I, I will say the moment where he hugs Malfoy oh my when he comes across is like on the edge of being terribly cringeworthy, but like it just fits the character so well. So that that's a moment that I I do like the awkwardness of like Tom Felton being like, what the hell am I supposed to do? There were laughs in my theater at that moment. Really? Oh, 100%. Yeah. And it pulls you out of the movie. I mean. Bob, have you ever laughed at a movie at a point where nobody else in the theater was laughing? Oh, frequently. Okay. Because I've done that in a few very key points of movies. (laughs) And my wife is just like elbowing me like, shut up. That is kind of the nice thing about watching movies at home, though, is like every once yep. in a while I'll watch a movie that just is so preposterous that out loud I'll just be like, F- you like, yep, <laughs> you can't do that in a real movie theater. <laughs> yep. Oh, man. All right. So just quickly, I, I do want to say that I think David Yates really turns things around in the second half of this movie. And for me, it started with this montage of Harry kind of going back out into the battlefield and it's done in slow motion and the sound kind of fades and. There's a troll and you find that Lavender Brown has died. And like from that moment on, I think the editing is nearly impeccable. The filmmaking is really, really well done. And the whole sequence where Harry returns to Dumbledore's office and puts his memory into the whatever that thing is called, like that Um, whole. That's the pensive. The pensive. Yes. So uh, that whole sequence of finding out Snape's backstory and the way it's edited together and the score, it is probably the best, like the most cinematic thing to happen in all eight movies. Like it's that or something that Quaron did in, in the third one. And mm-hmm. I have to hand it to him. Like it is just so well done. And I feel like if there's any flaw to it, it's that the emotion of watching Alan Rickman find Lily dead is undercut by the fact that immediately they're like, let's get back to the plot. And then you get the voiceover of Dumbledore being like, so yeah, anyway, Harry has to die. And I'm like, I, I want to dwell in this a little bit longer because I feel very moved by it. And so I, I think, again, sometimes the the necessities of the plot like are working against what Yates is trying to do as a filmmaker. So it's not always just that he's doing something poorly or that he wasn't thinking things through. I think sometimes it's just that they they feel this need to go as fast as they can through the you know the the machinations of the plot to get to the end and nowhere was that more apparent for me than when harry comes back from the dead and reveals himself and dumbledore and him somehow get close enough to like hug and fall off a bridge and and harry's trying to 
Did or I say Voldemort. Dumbledore? Oh, Voldemort. <laughs> you know, the same thing. <laughs> yeah, basically. And Harry's trying to say like, hey, I don't think you understand that the Elder Wand is not allegiant to you. But that whole plot point is so fuzzy at that point, and it's going so quickly that he's just like, hey, what if, what if the wand isn't, isn't allegiant to you at all, man? Come on, Tom, let's finish this together. And they dive <laughs> off a bridge. And I'm like, this is going way too fast. I don't understand what's going on. So even though the second half of this film worked for me, there always seems to be something working against it being completely successful. I'm with you, dude. And I think by the end of the film, like, you have the victory... And you're like, yay, we won. And then like the final scene with, and I'm not talking about the, 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 t you know, 20 years later scene, uh, like the final scene is Ron and Hermione and, and Harry, and they don't even really enjoy the victory. Mm -mm. They just kind of talk about plot some more and look at each other. And then Harry snaps the wand. And like, even in that moment, Ron is like, uh, that's a powerful wand. We can use it. And you're like, that's literally like, did you learn you, anything? You have learned nothing. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just the dumbest thing. And here's a place where they could have used the source material. I know you don't know this, Bob, because you've never read the book. But Harry uses the Elder Wand once. And he uses it to fix his old wand, the one that he got that represented him oh. entering the magical world. Come on. And that's like the that would have been the perfect thing to do. No, it wouldn't. In no, the that movie. sucks. I'm glad I'm glad he just threw it off the bridge. No, get out of here, man. The like I said before, the whole movies, the whole book series, the whole idea of Harry Potter is about him finding a place where he belongs. And so at the end of the series, the object that really marked him as joining the wizard world was the wand, because the wand chooses the wizard, and a wand wouldn't choose you if you weren't a wizard. He fixes that, and he gets rid of this object of power, which is what Voldemort was chasing after, power and all these things. It's a perfect way to thematically end the series, and they just don't do it. Hmm. That is something that I was very disappointed with the ending. All right. So let's hear your final score, because I think you're going to come out lower than me on this. Six and a half. Hmm. I, I think this is because I want it to be so much better. I think this is the worst of the Harry Potter series. I think that I want to give this an eight out of ten because I really enjoyed it. Like the end of the movie, I was like, yep, the first half was probably the worst thing in any of the eight movies. And the second half worked so well that I was like, it's an eight, but I think objectively I'm going to give it a seven and a half. Like I want, I enjoyed it more than it probably is good. So I'm going to, I'm going to come out to a seven and a half on this. That brings our average to a seven out of 10, which would make this, I believe the lowest ranked of all of the Harry Potter movies, except for maybe chamber of secrets. And I think yeah, that we, I, we weren't super high on Order of the Phoenix either, but I think it came out above a seven. Yeah, I think Order of the Phoenix, we probably were around a seven and a half. Um, yeah, I, I think that this and Chamber of Secrets are definitely my lowest two uh, of, the, of the eight films. Well, Brad, this has been uh, quite the journey. We're done with Harry Potter. We have finished the original trilogy of Star Wars. We got to find a new franchise to walk through. 
I think I might have given us that already. Yeah, I think we need to do Mission Impossible. Uh, dude, I'm with you, man. <laughs> All right, but we want to know what you think. Where does Harry Potter 8 rank among the eight Potter films for you? You can find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Film Whiskey. Or jump into the conversation on Discord. We are on there every single day talking to our fans. Uh, so come on in. You can find a link to our Discord at the end of every single one of our show notes. Brad, this is it, man. Season 5 has wrapped up, except for probably the most important episodes we do each season. We'll be back next week with part one and part two of our bracket challenge to determine the winner of season five. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>